I'm Scott Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the GAF Podcast. This podcast is for professionals who want to work in the advisory space. It's a series of conversations and essential frameworks to give better advice. It's the stuff they don't teach you at uni. It's where value sits. So buckle in, volume up, let's go. Scott Fitzpatrick here from the GAF. So good to have Graham Evans here with us. Industry legend, I'm going to call you. You might not like that term, but <laughs> industry journeyman, but industry legend from, uh, and I'm going to let you help me out here with some of the history, but from Tower Investments, AMP Consulting, Centerpoint, GPS, Eastern, there's an MBA thrown in there. There's a Diverge of the New Listed Group. And a little birdie told me you were one of the first people in Australia to have a self-managed super fund. So I'm not sure yes. how you fill that in, Graham, but give us a little bit more colour and all of that. Well, it, Scott, it's um, thanks very much for having me on. By the way, look, it's been it's been a great journey. I I did start in the industry when I was 15. Would you believe? Well, wow. um, and um, I came out of um, what was year four, what's now year 10, having done the school certificate. Um, my mother actually threw me into school very early. She lied about my age, um, and so I was always the youngest in the class. And so that's why I was 15 when I actually came out, not 16 like most people. But I actually fell into, um, into superannuation. Um, and uh, uh, from my early days, I was a specialist in that area. And um, I did a lot of work with uh, David Koch on 2GB at the time. I was on TV. Um, there, were, there, was a, there was a real um, interest to me, tax and, tax and super. And, and, and around about 30, I decided that it was actually, and I'd been working at that stage for 15 years at 30. Yep. So most people have been, yeah. haven't been working very much yeah. at that stage. I decided, yeah. do I want to be a, a techo for the rest of my life or should I do something um, else? And I decided to then do my MBA to actually give me um, a broader, um, broader understanding. Originally, it was to actually put the three letters after my name, but um, uh, it actually changed my way of thinking. So from that period on, uh, I've been running businesses, uh, both on the on the uh, corporate side and also in more recent times, uh, running advice and investment businesses uh, in the advice world, the retail world as well. Yeah, incredible! You know, incredible body of work that you should be really proud of, Graham. When you look back on that, seriously, yeah, you've had look, a re- you're one of the big movers. I'm not saying mover and shaker. I'm just saying you, you know you, you've been here from the from the, the get go in terms of this industry. On the way to a profession, which we will, which we will talk about. Well, let's let's raise that now. How are we going from an industry to a profession in your eyes? Look, I, I'm always worried that we take backward steps. Um, I understand the, the the challenges that people have regarding the educational requirements, um, and um, you know there, we've lost some great people out of the industry just because of the exams. Uh, but we're now talking about sort of um, having. Um, uh, a, a basis for um, uh, recognition of prior learning uh, in the in this, and I'm not quite certain that's a great step because the way I see it, to actually get rid of a lot of the compliance aspects, we all need to be at a similar sort of level. We all need to have sat the exam. We all need to have a minimum level of education, um, and and then they should be able to, like they do in the accounting profession, take the foot off the pedal in respect to compliance, because we're, we're operating within a code of ethics. Uh, we've all got at that minimum level of education and, um, and, uh, and understanding. And I see that, um, that 
that process as being the, the final step in, in getting us to a base level, which allows us to actually um, um, communicate with regulators and legislators that we're now in this situation that you can take the foot off the pedal. And we see this now already because a lot of the people that were, you're always going to have dodgy people in, in a finance industry. It doesn't matter where. Yep. What country, what what part of the world, what part Wherever of the Wherever the money country, is, yep. There's going to be people. But reality is the majority of people, and you've met them, I've met them, um, are, are always working in the interest of their, their clients. And I think the professionalism uh, issue is still to be there. The big challenge we actually have at the moment, Scott, is this move towards um, allowing people to do general advice. Um, and uh, I see a number of people who have not done the exam. Um, some of the licensees are actually appointing them as general advice. It's a very fine line between general advice and personal advice. Yep. And I think it's got, got the opportunity to actually cause some grief um, down the track if we don't get hold of that and deal with that straight away. So you're saying set the bar reasonably high so that, in effect, not self-regulating like other professionals, but you, you can have the honest conversation with the regulator. Yes. At a base level. Yeah. Look, and I, I, you know, a number of my close friends have uh, have decided to um, move from the industry um, because they didn't want to do the exam. They haven't sat in the exam for, you know, thirty odd years, and and so that they all felt it too hard. They didn't need to have the stress and pressure that goes with it. Um, and and I, and I feel sorry for them that way, but. But from the overall industry perspective, we have to actually think that way. Yeah, um, no, if, we, if we get that base level, so we're doing. I think we're doing reasonably well. Um, the quality of the advice, the bar keeps getting lifted, um, and uh, that's that's great. Um, the quality of advice, the quality of the record keeping, um, is um, is getting better and better. So when are we going? When will we be able to call ourselves a profession, Graham? I think rather, rather than an industry. I think from 2026, um, we can actually um, evidence it. I could say we're a profession today, but by the time we hit 2026, we'll be able to evidence it. We'll be able right. to evidence through the exam, we'll be able to evidence through um, the way we actually give advice, we'll be able to evidence through our, our, um, our um, learning and, um, and qualifications, um, and also on how, and how we deal with our code of ethics. Um, and deal with um, with people um, who have, in some way or another, not done the right thing in the industry. Mm. So within the single disciplinary body that we've actually got um, now being formed, um, these are people who have actually worked in our industry. They're, they're not um, people up in a puzzle palace have never seen yes. a client. The these are people palace. who have seen clients. Yes. Yeah. And so they will be able to really make a difference, I think, in working out um, when people need not be in the industry going forward. Just while I think of it, um, have you got any comments on the whole wholesale versus retail licensing? Look, I'm, I'm a great believer in that um, we always have a duty of care. Uh, I, I'm always concerned that people will um, use the wholesale um, process to, to actually minimise the amount of work they have to do with a client um, because of the outs associated with, you know, things like statements of advice. Um, but my, my view is that we've got a duty of care. Um, and if you actually recommend an investment, um, then you should actually go through a normal process uh, that a duty of care requires. And, and effectively, that process we actually have in our advice process for retail customers today. 
Um, I think if you look at Sydney today um, and you think about sophisticated investment test, um, just about everybody in Sydney because of house prices yes. is a sophisticated investor. <laughs> so you, it's, it's a little bit um, a little bit ridiculous um, from that perspective. Needs a refresh, I think. Yeah, it does need a, need a refresh. And look, um, and businesses like um, Coda, who work in the um, uh, family office, um, ultra high net worth, and I, I look at ultra high net worth being, you know, twenty million plus um, of investable assets. Uh, these guys have got a great business, and so they're dealing with people who um, uh, understand the risks associated with that. But I think up to about twenty million dollars, we need to think about um, the issues. Um, if you take what's going on with baby boomers, old people like myself, uh, they've had a business, they've been earning a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year. All of a sudden, they sell the business, and they've now got ten or fifteen million bucks. Reality is, they were the same people that were earning one hundred and fifteen, two hundred thousand dollars. You've got the same issues. They're not some sort of sophisticated investor just because they sold their business. That's a great point. And, you know, and, and I do understand the advisor's frustration as well, given, you know, we look after a few high net wealth families in that they're coming to you to get rid of the paperwork, not give it all back. Yes. So I see the, the other yeah. side of it. But, and yet, and then the flip side of that, again, if I flip back again, is once you talk about superannuation, you're back in retail land again. Everyone's got a super fund. So you're yeah. not having two, two two different versions of advice. Yeah, that's right. And, and look, it, it it is a difficult one. I think they need to put some real thought around this, how they might do it. You know, I look at high net worth individuals and there are people who are flashy with their money. There are people who are very, very conservative. I've, I've got a, a, a number of um, uh, colleagues in, um, and, and people that we deal with in uh, the eastern suburbs who... You know, worth 50, 60, 70, 80 million dollars, uh, but uh, you would never be able to tell it. You yeah. would never absolutely guess it at all. So there's different ways that people actually um, uh, have wealth and actually understand wealth and deal with wealth. And we need to be a little careful we don't, uh, don't cause any grief by putting everybody in the same bucket. Great. So that's a, it's a nice little entree for me here. And where do you see the future of dealer groups? Uh, well, are we going to see a move to self-licensing? What are the value Look, propositions a dealer group would have? Yeah, going Look, forward, I, I think um, if I if I think if I take the licensing issue as being an, an artificial issue, um, it's it's there to actually help the regulator manage the risks associated with uh, giving uh, advice to the majority of Australians, and and that's where it's actually sits. So the, the real way to get rid of dealer groups and in, in, their, in their licensing arrangement is to be able to have um, a, a technology which is actually um, reviewing documents and advice on a real-time basis. And uh, this is something we're doing at Diverger um, with our um, technology partnership with Hub, trying to actually work um, how we can do this, looking at all sorts of unstructured advice. If, if you can find... Um, if you can develop technology which actually through um, both um, AI, artificial intelligence and, and machine-based learning is actually checking things in real time, you can um, really start to remove the need to have this thing called a dealer group um, and this AFSL. But it won't stop the tribes um, that, that are there. So um, in GPS Wealth, one of the tribes that I've been involved with, they are very much a tribe. And, they, and it wouldn't matter whether half of them were self-licensed 
or half of them were authorised, they'd still be in that tribe. And I, I know with uh, with Fitzpatrick's uh, a similar sort of issue. They're a tribe. Yep. Um, Fortnum are a, um, a tribe. Yep. Um, the community. You feel it's a community. peer group. You feel yep. feel like home. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So they will still exist. But then it gets down to the people who are, who were dealer groups before, having to move into an environment where they provide services which are market appropriate and at a level which is market appropriate as well. So I see dealer groups actually um, uh, transforming into service businesses to support um, financial advisors. Mm, that's a really interesting one. So if I just recap that, there's a whole bunch of tribes out there that we all like to belong to. And in some way, shape or form, you need a license to operate, whether it's self-licensed or a, a larger license, but you want to stay within your tribe. Yeah. Then we've got a whole bunch of dealer groups out there without a value proposition or without a tribe, a need to sustain sustain themselves through either pricing or a service offering. Yeah. Look, I, I, I call them bums and I don't mean them that to be offensive. <laughs> uh, the, the expression I use, everybody's got one. Yep. They authorise people, they collect revenue and pay it, they run, some, they run the compliance aspects and they run some PD days. But when you start thinking about where the differentiation points are, you start to struggle with many of the licensees in the market today. And, and that's actually okay at the moment because we've got this artificial requirement to be authorised um, by ASIC. Yes. If that goes, then you've got to ask yourself, I can buy uh, revenue um, management models, so fees and commission management models off the shelf. Yep. I can get compliance off the shelf yep. without the authorisation, um, which is the glue. What, what do I need them for? Mm. So that's why they're going to need to actually find ways to create services where the advisor sees a value in what you're actually doing. Mm, a value proposition. I'm just, you know, I just look out there and go, oh, I'm not sure I just want to be a dealer <laughs> in this day and age where the value and the risk lies and everything yeah. else. Look, I totally agree with you in, in that side, um, Scott, from the perspective that the, the risk-reward relationship is, is imbalanced at the moment. And that's why we've got to rebalance that. Um, we've got to be able to provide services where we can we can actually earn an appropriate money rather than have some artificial structure which actually creates a need for people to pay us a fee. Yeah, the um, vertical integration issue, whether it's perceived or real, uh, still sits at, you know, at the front of advisors' minds. Yeah, look, and I think it's probably been a, a little bit overdone um, uh, because... One of the challenges, and, and this is something I was in the UK earlier in the year, one of the big challenges is how we get advice to more Australians, mm, and particularly at the smaller end of town. And we've only got a, if you see the breakdown of advisors at the moment, there's not that many of them there. No. If you take out, and take out stockbrokers out of it, where people are talking about 16,000, take stockbrokers out, there's about 4,000 of those that right. are actually in that as well. And there's a few others, and then you get down to it, we've probably only got about seven or 8,000 that are actually really giving advice. But in the UK, they've been through a bit of this process as well. People keep saying the UK is ahead of us. They are ahead of us in some of their journey. I'm not quite sure they're ahead of us in some of their thinking. But one of the issues they've actually um, considered is that vertical integration is not the, the, the root of all evil, particularly if it actually enables you to give advice to the, let me call them the great unwashed. Yes. Uh, the question in some of people's minds has got to be, is this more important for them to get advice rather than to worry for us to worry about vertical integration? Yep. And I think we'll Very see quick. some of that discussion 
happening around the quality of advice review that Michelle Levy's doing now. Um, we'll see more and more of that being discussed because we've got to find a way to actually get it. You and I have been around for a while. We know that, um, that in the early days, um, very early days, we were, we were paid entirely commission and we could deal with people because um, we got the commission. And, and, and in fact, it was subsidised. We got bigger commissions for bigger clients and got smaller commissions for small clients, but everybody got advice. Yes, yeah. This, this is, we need to actually find a way to get advice to a lot more people. And we've got to think about um, whether an altruistic issue associated with vertical integration and conflicts is something that we can balance with um, getting advice to a lot more people. Yeah, it's just a crazy world out there at the moment where a lot of my friends go, well, I've got, you know, I've got 300,000 or 500,000 or I need an insurance policy. And I'm going, I can't do it. It's just not. Can't afford to give it to you. Can't afford to give it to you. And, you know, so where do I have to send you to? Maybe to a union super fund. I don't know. But that's a whole nother, (laughs) another subject. So that was just, I just wanted to pick up on stockbrokers. Where do you see that as an industry going forward? Look, it's um, it's a difficult one. There's a lot of discussion around the concept of stamping fees, which basically enables different organisations to pick up a what is effectively a commission, and um, this issue whether it's actually relevant going going forward. But I see stockbrokers actually turning more and more into either they go further up the chain in respect to small family offices and the family offices and the high net worths. Um, or they convert more and more into a um, advice businesses yes. where they actually run portfolios for clients um, with the technology we have these days. So, f- for instance, that they can run a, um, an Australian Aussie's, uh, Aussie uh, equity mandate in a managed account where the client owns the actual shares. The stockbroking firm with its research and so on is actually providing the input into it. And then at the back office, they actually have, they have the, um, the system providing the SOAs in, in doing that. And they, they may more and more become that way as we see them having to make decisions to, as to which part they will actually go. Yeah, I've just, you know, I can't remember the last time I ran across a client who had a good stockbroker. Sorry. Like I say, it's got, to me, a good stockbroker is somebody who tells you not just when to buy, but when to sell. Yeah, that's a good point. And I know they've been resistant or they've been having trouble with some of the exams as well. There's been a bit of pushback on yeah. all of that. So yeah. that's an interesting one where that's going to go. So what do you think makes a good practice, Graham? If you were out there, you know, I'll get you to talk a little bit about Diverger as well, but, you know, what are the sorts of things that when you're out there in the market that you look at a practice and go, oh, I like that one? Well, it, it, I look at them in different ways. We have a concept we, we talk about here uh, of rock star practices. These are situations where um, there is a, a principal who is the lead generator of new clients and that original advice, and they've got a very strong team underneath them that support them so that all they do is basically see the client, which is their, where their expertise is. And um, I might be sort of making a, a poor observation here, but I would have thought that Scott Fitzpatrick was a rock star practice. The people come and see Scott. Scott's got a lot of people underneath him who actually do um, all of that back office work. They're very good at what they do and they support Scott. Scott actually has got the relationship and the knowledge that actually goes with actually looking after those clients and doing them. So some of those uh, those practices are really good if they've got those structures in place. From a corporate perspective, a corporate practice that we actually see, we've got a multitude of advisors, uh, but, but a good operating structure and process which everybody follows. 
And now that's a that's a challenge um, uh, in that situation. So when when we look at practices, we try to actually then segment them um, into you know the rock star practices or the corporate practices. Yep. Um, and then look at the underlying processes and systems that actually have that they have in not only looking after the clients, but actually also in generating new clients um, because that's actually uh, makes a practice more valuable if they do have that ability to actually grow. Because you'll always have clients falling off the perch or clients moving overseas. or So you'll have some, you've got to have them coming, coming in the pipe as well. So <laughs> if I use your analogy, I'm an ageing rock star. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening with the ageing rock stars? They're all looking for succession. They're all going... I need to bring some people through. Who's going to buy my practice? Do I? What do I do? What are my options there? Look, it's um, they are, but I I'm, I can refer to one of the guys that works with me, Rob McGregor. Lovely um, guy. Rob, yeah, lovely guy, Rob, and and he's got an enormous amount of knowledge, and his clients love him. Eventually, what he would would like to do is actually help people. He doesn't um, necessarily want to provide advice for the rest of his life. But he's also got a very, very strong uh, background on client engagement um, and, and how clients think, act and feel and actually being able to help uh, in that. So I think the, the ageing rock stars have got an, um, an intuition, knowledge and client understanding, which actually is above what, what you would actually consider is a technical level of knowledge to deal with a client. You know, it's, it's, I used to joke about economists knowing uh, 50 different ways to make love, but not knowing a partner. I have to say partner. I used to say woman, but can't say that. No, no. A partner. But um, but the same thing goes with a lot of advisors. They are great technicians, but don't know how to deal with a client. Yeah. Don't know how to talk to a client. Yep. Don't know how to read a client. Yes. Don't know how to actually see what's going on when a husband or wife or two partners are sitting opposite them, reading what's actually going on with that those dynamics. So you think we've, a lot, not, we've not lost that? We, you know, you and I have been around for a while, and if you start off in insurance, you, you lived or died by that skill. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And so that emotional intelligence piece, maybe we're producing too many technicians. Well, we, well I think we are, and I think that's where the let's call them the rock stars or the aging rock stars are actually able to provide that, um, that training expertise. For some people, it's intuitive. For a lot of other people, it has to be a learned process. Yeah, I'm, I'm running a lot of, well, I seem to be running a lot of courses for accountants and lawyers now and, and other wealth advisors to, to do more on this, how to engage with the client, how to read the room, yeah. how to pick up all the, all, all the signs and how to lead the conversation. But so just back to that the aging rock star versus the corporate model, have, do you have a preference if, if, you're, if you had your diverger hat on or a buying hat on? Look, I think um, the, um, the corporate allows you to, to go further with a practice. In other words, if you've got good systems and processes and you're not relying on uh, what I refer to as the cult of the individual. Yeah, the headhunter. Uh, Yep. Yeah, then then you can actually then grow and you can tuck in other businesses into to that. Yep. Um, and I do see that we will see a lot more businesses in the next uh, five to seven years that sort of a 10, 15, 20 million dollars worth of revenue. Yes. Through right. people who've got great corporate structures in doing that. You know, we've got I've got a couple of very good practices within um, our business, um, Insight Wealth in Newcastle. Uh, My Wealth Solutions in Brisbane have got great processes and systems 
and they could easily be a $20 million practice. In so they're the super practices of the future we talk about, but yep. really under an employed model? Yeah, it is an employed model, although it's in, in, in both of those models, um, they make sure that the, uh, the people who are going to be part of that future have skin in the game. Yep. Is that through really? equity plans or Equ performance yeah. plans? Yep. Equity plans generally and structure, structure that they've done and not all necessarily equity in the main, um, main the head company, yes. but they've got different ways to actually do that, and which is also the way I like because they've thought about it. They've actually they've thought through how they can do this and, and keep people interested and involved. Great. And what about valuations? Graham, just a quick word on valuations. You're seeing them go up, down, across the board based on uh, EBIT or reverse retire, recurring revenue. Yeah. Look, the small end of town, it's recurring revenue. There's no, no doubt. Um, and um, I can tell you now I've seen anywhere from uh, 1.7 um, to 3.2 yep. in, um, in small, small books. And people have got different ways of actually, actually looking at how they actually do this. A good book with a, with a, a multiple 3.2 certainly actually is, is a diversified book. It's not at the uh, older end of the, the scale. Um, yes. a good recurring revenue, um, generally client, um, 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 a num smaller number of clients. So not a multitude of clients. Yes. Some people think a multitude of clients is better. No. It's actually not. It's actually a smaller no. number of clients to look after, That's giving you the revenue risk. that you actually need. Yeah, the risk that goes with it. So, so that smaller end of town. Once you start getting into buying a business, you've got to use EBIT. Um, I always used to joke, I'm happy to sell on, on multiples, but actually I'm only going to buy on EBIT. So, <laughs> so um, it's, yep. it's actually uh, really seeing you know, what is the profitability that is actually coming out of practices now? Um, and part of our award process for our practices, we look at um, not only what their clients say about them, but we look at also their financials. And, and I think anywhere between 35 and 45% profit margin is basically where we see a, a good good practice these days. Yeah, right. So if you, if you, and that's actually after an, a normalised um, principal salary, salary yeah. in there. And so those sort of practices should be commanding between six and seven um, times EBIT in doing it. And they would have a growth aspect associated with them. So you think so that's sustainable EBIT, 35 to 45 for a great practice? In, in this market, yeah. So, so six times EBIT will get you as an investor around about um, a 16 or 17% return. Yep. 16.66, I'll, yep. I'll, I'll just round it to those numbers. So in these days, you've got to actually ask yourself, you, you, to determine this as an investor, you start off with a risk-free rate of return, which is quite low. Yes. Um, then you actually would include um, a, a cost for the investment, and then you move a cost for it being an active investment, not a passive investment, and then you would look at the risk of the industry and then look at the risk of the individual business itself. And it, and it builds up to a rate of return, your expectations. Yes. So as you're looking at these things, you actually say, okay, 16.6, if I've got a good business, my risk of this business is, is lessened. If I found a business which was risk, which risk I might only pay four times for. Four times is a 25% return because that's what I'm going to need for the risk. Yes. And so, so in doing that, we we think it is that we think there's enough good sustainable businesses out there to maintain that uh, that six uh, six times multiple. Great. And can I just get you to spend just a couple of minutes talking about diverger? So, well, it so seems the, like it's yeah. an eclectic set of businesses in there, counting the yes, technology? It, it, it is. Um, 
The, the most interesting thing is our new group CEO, Nathan Jacobson, uh, he was running um, Paragem uh, at, uh, at Hub, as well as their, uh, their tech uh, division. And um, when we started talking to them, it was actually off the back of something completely different. We, we had a meeting in the minds and we sat down and talked about where the strategies were going um, for both Paragem and, and the tech side and what we were doing at Eastern, which was the old Diverger name. And virtually we had both a, a exactly the same view, and that is that we are moving into a services area, that the tribes will exist, um, and that um, we need to develop more scale to be able to provide the broader services. So, for instance, we've, we, we have a transitional equity process, which actually helps people with succession or with growth in their practices. We're not looking to buy practices and then, you know, tie them all up and list them separately. Yep. We're actually looking to help them grow. And in helping them grow, we want an equity return, but they can buy us back out whenever they like. Um, so in doing that, you need to actually employ people who can actually manage that. And they're not cheap. And you can't employ half a person. So yes. you do need scale to actually provide the services that you actually need. To bring the capability in. Yeah. And and so um, so Diverger has got um, three licenses, um, GPS Wealth, Paragem and Merit Wealth. Um, it's got um, its accounting for the um, tribes. Three for, for the, the tribes. Tribes, yep. tribes yeah. It's got. It's, it's just started its self-licensed business last year. We've only got about ten clients in that, and that's growing quite well. We've also got the accounting, training, and education businesses, uh, knowledge shop, and tax banter, and they actually do um, a great job with public practicing accountants on practical advice, not theoretical advice. Practical advice on how to deal with things. Um, we have our managed account business, CARE, and that's supported by operations and compliance business, which supports all of those businesses mm. in that as well. The idea being is we want to grow the services that we actually provide to, to, to the clients. Yep. And, and that technology partnership we have with Hub yep. is about getting real-time compliance and real-time business metrics to advice practices. Wow. That's very cool. I, I do like that. I like, the, I like the thinking behind all this, Graham. Yeah, you, about you, the tribes and then the different services the tribes need to sustain. Yeah, yeah. To, you know. Look, and I think you've got to keep going them. with that, Scott. Sorry, I was going to say you've got to you got to keep thinking and changing and evolving with that. If you if you don't, you, you lose relevance. Uh, and so uh, it's a it's always testing, um, but um, you know, change is never come. Mastery is all about change, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's how you get there. Now we're going to finish up because this has been fantastic, and I, you know, I'll, I'm going to get you back on again because we've got a lot more to talk about. But just really two quick things. One, what's the best habit you think that's helped you in your professional career, whether it's weekly or daily? Well, I, I always told my kids, you know, they, my wife and I have never been fantastic sports people, but we always um, worked with our kids, trying to help them. And uh, I remember a day. I think when my daughter was around about 12 and we're down at Ride Pool and it's a Sunday afternoon, it's in the middle of winter and, and she's got um, the school carnival coming up in a couple of months' time. And she said to me, Dad, and she's up and swimming up and down and we're practising her starts and, and all that sort of back, uh, uh, backstroke finishes and all that sort of stuff. And she said to me, um, Dad, why are we doing this? Nobody else is doing it. That's exactly the reason. So... Um, successful people do what unsuccessful people don't. Yeah, that's you know, so. People who 
I got out of bed this morning in the cold, eight degrees at 5.30 and went to the gym. Yep. Okay. That's, that's my habits are get up and get it done. Mm. Um, and when, when the going gets tough, as they say. Tough, you get going. Get going. And so you, you keep at it. And so over, over the years, it hasn't all been um, beer, and, beer and Skittles. It's so, been tough, tough times. You just got to gotta keep, keep at it. So I hear resilience is one of your outstanding features. I'd say resilience would be would be certainly one of my um, maybe doggedness in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some so people would say that. So let's finish with your word for the year. I often ask people about what's the rock. If you had to put one word on a rock, which is a lens for you to make decisions throughout the year, what do you think that would be for you? Well, well, Scott, I think from my perspective, um, I don't really want to become um, a cranky old bee that some people do as as the world changes in front of them and you know, wish everything was back where it was. And so my, 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 my word at the moment is definitely flexibility. Yep. You, you've, you've got to be flexible. You know, you, you, you certainly get older, but you've actually got to be prepared to actually um, look at the way the world is changing. It doesn't change your values and beliefs, but it might change the way that those values and beliefs play out in different things. So you've got to be flexible um, as, you, as you get older. Yeah, so I think you've got a good awareness around that. It sounds like it's giving yourself permission to be flexible. Yes, definitely, definitely the case. You, uh, I'm I'm constantly um, I'm constantly thinking that way, and it, and through thinking that way, it does give me permission to to actually say, Graham, you really need to think that, uh, rethink that, because it's actually not the way the world is heading. Yeah, it's that beautiful combination of bringing your wisdom to the table, but be open to new possibilities. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. mate, it's been a pleasure. You've just got such a wealth of knowledge around every facet of this place. And I love that you're always future thinking it. Uh, I really appreciate you you coming on today. Thanks very much for having me. Great to have you, mate. Thanks for listening to the GAF podcast. We're all about empowering advisors. We think making great advisors is great for the community. Just to be clear, this is not personal advice. If you need personal advice, seek a qualified professional. Thanks for listening.